Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McCarty. Colossians 2, I hope that you remember everything that we reviewed last week about circumcision, about physical circumcision, and the circumcision of the heart, because this morning Paul is going to expand our concept of circumcision yet again. I told you that both the Greek and the English word both mean the same thing. They both mean to cut around. That's an important concept to hold on to in order to understand what Paul is about to tell us. But I can't go leaping into the middle of verse 11, which is where we left off last week. So I'm going to start reading at chapter 2, verse 1 so that we can build up speed and context, and then it will hopefully make more sense when we hit the middle of verse 11. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, 
and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, Nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and all authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us in which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things that are mere shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I wanted to read the whole argument before I began picking it apart so that you can understand the details because this argument is Absolutely brilliant, but it is building point upon point. And by the time Paul gets to Christ has canceled out the certificate of debt that consists of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, that's the point that many religious people would begin arguing with Paul's argument, would begin disagreeing with him, because it is really hard for us to imagine that Christ actually took the law out of the way. I hope this morning that you will understand the necessity of the law being taken out of the way and nailed to the cross of Christ in order for Paul's whole argument to make any sense. Let's start back in verse 11. Last week, as I said, we talked about historic circumcision. We talked about the definition of circumcision, and we saw in the Old Testament and the New Testament how the type of fleshly circumcision was actually a picture that was pointing to the circumcision of the heart, the cutting around of your heart, the taking out of your stony heart and giving you a heart of flesh that had been cut away at by God so that you would have the ability to hear him 
and understand him and comprehend him. But now Paul goes even further and says that the cutting of the flesh that Christ does for all his people is a removal of the body of flesh, not just circumcision of the fleshly foreskin, but now circumcision of the entire fleshly body. Now, this Greek word, sarx, translated fleshier, every time that Paul uses that word, it always has a negative connotation to it. He never uses that word positively. Instead, what he's saying is everything that is involved in your flesh, your sinfulness, your depravity, your lusts, your desires, your rebellion, your hatred toward God, everything that is your sinful self is wrapped up in your flesh. And that's a problem because your flesh is at enmity with the very spirit of God. So the first problem that has to be resolved between you and God is that something has to be done about the fact that you are fleshly. And when I say fleshly, I want you to think all of the implications of that word, that you are a sinner, that you are depraved, that you are by nature desiring your own way, that you are wandering sheep. And that is what Paul means every time he uses this word. He's saying that you are fleshly and therefore not spiritual. You are dead spiritually, but you're alive in your flesh and therefore you are rebellious against God. And so something has to happen because of your fleshliness and the solution to your fleshliness can't be you because you're the fleshly one. You're the rebellious one. And so you can't fix you. So something has to be done about the fact that you're so you. And here Paul begins his argument about the completion of everything Christ has done for you. The totality of the salvation that Christ has actually secured for you. The first problem that he has solved for you is that he has solved your flesh problem. And the way that he did it was, first he circumcised, removed that body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So when Christ performs circumcision, that circumcision that is made without hands, when he spiritually circumcises you, he separates you from everything that is your sinfulness, that everything that is your ego. He separates you from everything that would keep you separated from God. He died on the cross to pay for all your fleshliness, all your sinful transgressions. And he took those, put them on himself, became the ransom price for them, and died substitutionarily in order to pay the price necessary for your fleshly sin. And in that way, he separated you from everything that is your flesh. That is the ultimate spiritual circumcision. So that is the first thing that he did for you. But Paul's a long way from finished in describing everything that Christ did in order to secure you eternally. The first thing he did was spiritually circumcise you. When did this take place? Paul combines it with the notion of baptism. Now, I know that Micah was hoping that this week I was going to take some time and define, just like I did with circumcision, that I would take the time to define baptism in the Old Testament and in the New and talk about the various different kinds and forms of baptism, all of which is true. There is an entire history to baptism, and I have notes upon notes that I could recite to you about what baptism is. But last night, as I was reviewing what I was going to say this morning, I realized that all that history 
was actually distracting from the point that Paul's trying to make here. And the point that he's trying to make here is the all-sufficiency of Christ. So I don't want to distract you from that because the particular baptism that Paul is talking about, he's also going to describe right here in the text so that we know what baptism he's describing. He's talking about water baptism. He's talking about being immersed in water. And he's going to say that being baptized, being put under the water is also a typification of Christ and the death that Christ died. And so he's going to make that connection and say, when you yourself went under the water, that was you dying to your flesh. And the same way that Christ raised to new life, when you were brought up out of the water, you were brought up to new life in Christ. And so he makes that connection in order to say that that is all part and parcel of what Christ has actually done for you. Not only did he die to create the spiritual circumcision to separate you from your fleshly debt, but then he went and paid that debt. By the way, if you want to know what the debt is, the wages of sin, according to Paul, is death. Eternal death, not just fleshly death. And so he separated you from the debt that you owe God because you're in the flesh. And you are typified in the way that you are baptized so that you are related to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ so that you can reckon your old fleshly man as truly dead and that you are raised again to newness of life. But even if you know all that theologically, that might not be any help to you because, well, I know you because you're like me. Anybody here ever tried to stop a habit? I mean, just any habit. It can be any overeating, stop smoking. People have addictions to all kinds of things sugar, their credit card. People are addicted to a lot of things. And people will set their minds to it and say, okay, this is it. Today, I stop. Today, I'm done. Today, I cut up the credit card. Today, I don't even open my laptop. Today, I'm going to stop the sugar. Today, today, I'm going to take care of my smoking problem. Today, I'm going cold turkey. How successful was that for anybody? Not usually very good. We might stop for a day or two. We might stop for three days, maybe even a week, and then start feeling good about ourselves. So we reward ourselves by going back to whatever it was we were trying to quit because there we've proven to ourselves that we are not slave to it. We can stop whenever we want, but we still go back to it. So we, in our flesh, don't have the ability to actually raise ourselves up, reckon our flesh as dead, and walk in this newness of life that Paul is talking about. So where are we going to get the power to actually do that? Paul says, the same power of God that lifted Christ from the grave is the same power that's going to work on you as it cuts away at you as it cuts around you, as it circumcises you away from your flesh. And that process, I am convinced, is a life process. I'm not the man I want to be. I don't expect an amen at this point. But there are many things that I think, you know, I should really be more dedicated to that. I should really spend more time pursuing the righteous and the holy things. And I really shouldn't spend as much time in front of the TV or YouTube or whatever else. Not the man I want to be, but I can tell you this, I'm not the man I used to be. And you should be really happy about that. Because I had a fierce temper. 
And I was an egocentric maniac back in my rock and roll days. So I can look back and say, okay, I went from being that guy to being this guy. How did I get from what I used to be to who I am now? Plan A for my life was rock star. And now I'm standing in a pulpit preaching to a group of people in Smyrna, Tennessee, and talking to people via the internet scattered around the world. How did I become that guy? I can't take any credit for that. That has to be God working on me, cutting around me, and changing me according to his own sovereign plan via the sovereign power that he has, which he proved that he has by the fact that he brought Jesus Christ up out of the grave. That becomes the proof positive that God has the power to change you. Anybody want to testify that they're not who they used to be? Can you think back on how you used to be? I wake up some nights and think about places I've been and things I've done, and it's scary. It's like, whoa, I am fortunate to have even lived through that. I can't take credit for that, and you can't take credit for that. It is only the power of God constantly cutting away at you, the circumcision of Christ. And you are aligned with Christ by the fact that you have been buried with him in baptism, says verse 12, in which you were also in that baptism. You were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So it's not your power. It's not your ability. It can't be your flesh. It can't be you that is the solution to your problems. Instead, it is the power of God, the power that he proved by the fact that he raised Jesus from dead. Therefore, he can raise you from your spiritual death and bring you to spiritual life where you then have the ability to understand his word, to understand what he has accomplished, to understand his control over world history, to understand his sovereign majesty, and look forward, hopefully, to your ultimate redemption and your eternal glory with him, and the hope that passes understanding, and that you can walk through this world confident because you know that God, the eternal God, the maker of heaven and earth, is the one who's got your back. How did you figure that out? Because God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who raised you from your spiritual death, paid your sin penalty, and is cutting away at you, giving you the ability to understand the things of God. Great argument so far, huh? Yeah. But Paul's not done. The sentence began at verse 9. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been completed. You've been established in God's court as having everything necessary to stand before God unblemished, unblameable, perfected, completed. He's the one that accomplished all that on your behalf. Why? Because he's the head over all rule and authority, which you want him to be, because the rulers and the authorities, the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places, is working really hard to take you out. And you're no match for what's going on out there in the heavenlies that is increasingly making its way here into this earthly sphere. You're no match for that. You don't want to go head to head with those principalities, those powers, those authorities. And so God himself through Christ is the one who is the head over all that rule and all that authority. And that is exactly where you want him. You want him between you and the demonic hordes that exist out there that want to sift you like wheat, that want to do eternal damage to you. Christ stands between you and them, and he is the head over them, 
He is protecting you from all the rule and authority out there. And in fact, I read it on purpose. If you look down to verse 15, it says, and he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and the authorities. The exact same phrase. Not only is he the head, not only is he the arche, the chief one over all the principalities, the powers, the rulers, the darkness, the evil that exists, but he has also disarmed those rulers and authorities, and he made a public display of disarming them, having triumphed over them through Christ. That's the way you want it to be. Okay, so that's something he did for you. In him you've been made complete. That's something he did for you. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's something he did for you. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. That's also something he did for you, empowering you to overcome this flesh. And by the way, at some point, you're going to lay this flesh down. This flesh is headed for the grave. This flesh can't stand in its sinful state before an absolutely righteous, holy God. That's why even the talk of the resurrection, Paul says that you're going to get a new body. And that is because you have to have a righteous body, a holy body, a body that is not stained with sin, a body that doesn't have a proclivity toward your own egocentric desires. And how is all that accomplished? Through him, through him, through him, and through him. Have I mentioned through him? him. It's all through him. He's accomplished all of that. And he has proved that he can accomplish all that by the fact, the historic fact, the inarguable fact that Jesus Christ got up out of the grave by the power of him who has promised you to do all the rest of that for you. And he left you evidence. He didn't just say he was going to do it and then leave it out there like some kind of ethereal promise. He gave you physical, historic, actual evidence that he has the power to do all of that for you. Thank God. But Paul's not done. That's just the end of that sentence. But now he's going to describe verse 13 that when you were dead in your transgressions, Okay, when you were dead in your transgressions, you were still physically alive. That's why you were capable of transgressing. So he's not talking about physicality here. He's saying when you were spiritually dead, incapable of getting to God, incapable of pursuing holiness or righteousness, when you were dead in your transgressions. By the way, If you were dead in your transgressions, what could God expect you to do on a spiritual level? That'd be nothing. You're incapable of doing anything. So I say again, the answer to your problem cannot be you. Because your flesh is corrupt and spiritually you're dead. So you got nothing you can plead your cause with. It has to be an alien righteousness. It has to be a righteousness outside of you that is imputed to you. It has to be a power outside of you empowering you. It has to be a circumcision not with hands that will remove your fleshly guilt and your fleshly desires from you. It has to be God himself doing for you all the things that you simply cannot do because you're dead. You got it? You're dead in your trespasses. But when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, if he's writing to the Gentiles at this point, that is true. They were uncircumcised in their flesh. But since Paul has also told us here that the circumcision of Christ is the removal of the body of the flesh, He's talking pretty universally here about every sinner 
and saying that they were dead in transgressions and in the uncircumcision of the flesh. And then he made you alive together with Christ, who is the actor there. God alone is the actor. You're the one who is acted upon. He made you alive together. He had to do it because you're dead. You were so busy being dead that you couldn't possibly make yourself alive again. So he made you alive together with Christ the same way again that he lifted Christ up out of the grave is the same power of God that inhabited you to bring you up from your spiritual deadness to newness of life, spiritual awakeness, so that you could understand spiritual things and the things of God. So he, when you were dead, because of your transgressions and your sinfulness and your rebellion, he then made you alive together with Christ. And how did he make you alive again? Having forgiven us for our transgressions. Notice again who the actor is. You didn't forgive you for your transgressions. It was a big movement for a while in the self-help world where they used to tell you that psychologically you had to learn to forgive yourself. Those things you've done in life that were wrong, those people you've hurt, you just need to forgive yourself. Let me tell you how much good it does you to forgive you. Because you're the one who did it in the first place. You're the one that's going to remember that you did it in the first place. And your forgiveness of you has no actual lasting effect. It's only if you know that the God of ages has forgiven you that genuine forgiveness has any real value. Because if you're okay with God, then you're okay eternally. And if he has forgiven you for your transgressions, then your transgressions are eternally forgiven, never to be brought up again. And therefore, you're actually, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, philosophically, theologically, you're okay. Because God did for you what you can't do for yourself. I keep saying it. I'm going to say it again now. I've said it three times so far this morning. The solution to you can't be you. You forgiving you doesn't get you eternally forgiven. But when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ having forgiven all your transgressions. All your transgressions. All! Your tra Have I mentioned the all part? All. He forgave you for all your transgressions. He didn't hold on to that one. He's not waiting for you to trip up one more time. He forgave you for all your transgressions. Okay, now this is why I said earlier that the next verse is vital to Paul's whole argument. Because so far what we know is Christ has cut away on us. We have been aligned with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection in the fact that we have been baptized into Christ and we went under the water in the likeness of his death. We're taken up out of the water in the likeness of his resurrected new life. And the power of God that resurrected him is the power of God that changes us. And when we were dead in our spiritual deadness and in the uncircumcision and sinfulness of our fleshly bodies, Christ nevertheless died for us to pay our sin debt for all of our transgressions. But if he didn't add the next part it would be up to you to keep yourself good once Christ had made you good. In other words, once he died on the cross and forgave your sins, he forgave all of your sins up until the point 
where you know you're forgiven. But then if you go out tomorrow and break the law, you're guilty again. And we know from the book of James that if you're guilty of any one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. So you could be forgiven on Monday and on Tuesday, make a mistake, break the law, trip up on one of the 613 ordinances of the law, and then you'd be guilty of the whole law again, and everything else that Christ had done for you is negated. And suddenly you're guilty before God again because you've broken his holy righteous standard. So Paul says the next thing that Christ did was take the law that would condemn you, took the law that is against you, took the law that would be the basis of your judgment, and he also took that out of the way. How saved are you? He did everything necessary for your full, complete redemption, salvation, eternal glorification with God. You're going to stand before God spotless, unblemished, blameless, not because of anything within you, not because you made yourself good, not because you cleaned yourself up, not because you decided to circumcise your own fleshly body, but because Christ himself not only changed you and awakened you, but he forgave you and he guaranteed that you're not going to be judged by the law ever again. It is a complete salvation. Here's the way Paul puts it, starting at verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Part of his dying for your sinfulness and your transgressions and your rebellion, part of it was that he also took the very thing that would judge you and took that out of the way as well. Now that's standard Pauline theology. He doesn't just say it here in Colossians. If it sounds familiar, it's because he also teaches the exact same thing in Ephesians 2. So since this study in its largest context is the study of Ephesians and Colossians, turn back to Ephesians 2. Keep your finger there in Colossians. Ephesians 2, and we are going to read all the way through to verse 15. Everybody there? Chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, starting at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Sound familiar? Yep. Like I said, it's standard Pauline theology that your sins and your trespasses rendered you spiritually dead. Not just you stubbed your toe, you tripped up a little bit, you're, you're slightly wounded. It's just a flesh wound. But that you're actually dead before God because you have rebelled against him. And because he is an eternally righteous God, your rebellion is an eternal rebellion and the price you have to pay for it is eternal death. So you couldn't fix it. And when you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Remember a few moments ago, I was talking about the rulers and talking about the authorities, the ones that Christ triumphed over. And I said that you want him between you and those dark forces. Paul says the same thing here. That when you were walking according to this world, when you were walking according to this fleshly body, 
you were walking according to the course of this world. Remember Paul said to the Colossians, don't conform to the rudiments of this world, to the elementary principles of this world. Same idea here. You used to walk according to the course, to the elementary principles of this world. And how is that? According to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan himself. According to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Why are they disobedient against God? Why are they sinful? Why are they depraved? Why are they fleshly? Because they're walking according to the prince of the power of the air who holds sway over their lives. Verse 3, among them we too also formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. There's that flesh that Christ had to circumcise for us. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest of them. By nature, the way we were born, walking in the flesh, walking in the world. By nature, we deserve the wrath of God. That's what we deserve according to our flesh, according to our sinful desires, according to our trespasses, according to the way that we walk and we conduct ourselves. What we deserve is the wrath of God. And then I love the next two words. But God... Because yes. I got tired of hearing about me. Because everything Paul said about me here is accurate. So I couldn't fix me. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Sound familiar? We just read it out of Colossians. Standard Pauline theology. We didn't do it. God did it. God, because of his great love with which he loved us, demonstrated that love by raising us up, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive again with Christ. And then Paul adds parenthetically, by grace, you have been saved. By amazing grace. You have been saved. And he raised us up with Christ and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. It's about as plain as it gets. I don't feel at this very moment in this aging body as I continue to wrestle with this corrupt flesh, trying as hard as I can to take every thought captive to God and to his word and often failing miserably, I don't feel like I'm seated with him in the heavenly places. Anybody in here feeling that right now? I don't feel that. But it's a fact. Because God has already established it. Because we've been saved by Christ, because he is the one circumcising us away from our flesh, he is the one who raised Christ up from the dead, and therefore he has raised us up with him, and he has seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why God's doing it. He's doing it to demonstrate his own glory. He's doing it to prove that he's the only one who could do it and that he did something this magnificent in the saving of people like you and me so that we will be, through all of eternity, trophies to his grace so that he can say, look what I did. I saved these unsavable, transgressing sinful, wretched, rebellious people, and I did it just to show how truly gracious I am. He's not saving you because you're that good. He's saving you because you are that bad. So you need to get your self-assessment correct in order that in the ages to come, 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ because he himself is our peace and he has made the two groups, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, he has made those two groups into one. And how did he do it? By breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall in the temple in Jerusalem. There was a court known as the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh could come to the temple, but they couldn't go into the inner courts. They could only come to the court of the Gentile. And there was a dividing wall that would separate the Gentiles from the Jews, and they weren't allowed to cross it. Paul takes that figure, that type, that historic reality, and says Christ has broken down the wall of partition that stood between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, between Jew and Gentile, and he has saved all of us because all of us were sinners, because all of us were walking after the course of this world, because all of us were still walking in our flesh, and therefore needed redemption. And how did he break down that wall? Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the againstness, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, and by it he's put to death the enmity between Jew and Gentile, between God and sinner, and he's made peace between sinners and God. How did he accomplish it? Through the body of his flesh, through the blood that he shed for the forgiveness of sin, and by abolishing the law of commandments that stood against us to judge us, to accuse us, knowing that it couldn't save anybody, all it could ever do is stand and make people guilty, Christ also abolished that. That is standard Pauline theology. Now somebody's going to say, well, then you're preaching antinomianism. Do you know that word, antinomian? The word nomos is the word for law. Anti, to be against. Against law. You're teaching lawlessness. And Paul was accused of that very thing. And so he answered that charge by saying, it's not that we are lawless. We're under the law of Christ. It's not that we are lawless, we're just not under Moses. Because in the whole 1400 year history of the law of Moses, how many people were ever eternally saved by it? Nobody. Nobody. One person ever actually kept it. And therefore, since it never actually saved anybody, what value would there be to saying to you, now, you're saved by Christ. You're saved through Christ. You're saved by the finished work of Christ. You have received the Holy Spirit, which is what Christ promised. 
And Christ is sitting at the right hand of God ever to be your intercessor for you. And he's forgiven you all your sin. But when it comes to your personal, individual sanctification and righteousness here on this planet, in this flesh, that's up to you. And you're going to be judged according to the law of Moses. Through the years, I have heard so many people say, we are brought to Jesus for our salvation. But we're brought to Moses for our sanctification. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, it's Christ, it's all Christ, it's completely Christ. It's utterly Christ, and it's for the glory of Christ. And that's why he gets the name that is above every name. And that's why we get to go to heaven to be the trophies of God's grace so that he can demonstrate his graciousness to people like us. We don't get to insert ourselves and say, yeah, but I was pretty good with that whole sixth commandment thing. I didn't kill anybody, you know, that I know of. You don't get to insert yourself into the righteousness that only God can establish. Because God expects a level of righteousness that only he has. And you can't reach that. He instead has to impute that to you so that he can treat you, respond to you, view you as truly righteous. So, what did Christ actually do for us? Let's review. I'm back in Colossians 2. First off, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. He, walking around in a human body here on planet Earth, contained all deity. That means there are no other gods. There is no other deity. There is no other idol, anything made by man's hands. There are no other temples. There's no other place that you can go for peace with God for genuine righteousness, for satisfaction, redemption. There's no place else that you can go and find genuine comfort for your soul. You're going to continue to agonize before those foreign gods trying to get them to do something for you. But in Jesus Christ, you find all deity in bodily form. In him, you have been made Complete, if you've been made complete, what do you got to add to that? The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 14. He has perfected forever those that he has sanctified. Okay, if you're complete and perfected forever, what's your part? That's why we say it's grace. And that's why the Bible, I should point out, says it's grace. In him you've been made complete. He's the head over all rule and all authority, which is exactly where you want him. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which were hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. And he has disarmed those rulers and those authorities that he is over, and he has made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I think that's why Jesus would say things like, I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because he's the chief one. He's the Ark A. He's the top one. He's the one who the principalities and the powers and the spiritual wickedness in high places, they can't stop him. That's why we say he's our captain. That's why we say that he is the, the founder, the author, and the completer of our faith and our salvation. That's why he's our hero. That's why he's our champion. That's why he's our advocate with the Father. That's why we trust utterly and completely in him and only in him because he's the one that fought off the demons that would try to keep us separated from God. He's the one who took the law out of the way which would condemn us and keep us from God. He's the one that circumcised our flesh that would rebel and keep us against God. He's the one who died for our transgressions which would have kept us away from God. He's the one in whom we are already seated in heavenly places with him. And that's the plan of God. That's the intention of God. When God looks at you and I, because he doesn't have the limitations of time, he sees the end result of what he began before the foundation of the world. And part of what he intended before the foundation of the world was that you be in his presence forever. He already knows you're coming. He's already got the plan made. He's already established it. He's already killed his son for it. He's already raised up his son for it. He's already prophesied it in his word, and the word cannot be broken. Therefore, he did everything. You are the recipient of astounding, amazing, unending grace, all for his own glory. And there's nothing he left it up to you to do in order to accomplish what he alone has done. You got it? You got, it. You got how complete this thing is? Mm -hmm. Now look, I know that's hard to wrap your head around. I get it. You hear me say all that stuff, and you think, wow, that's great if it's true. And sometimes it's hard to hold on to those kind of concepts and then continue to walk in this sin-soaked world. It's hard to imagine that you are already in the mind of God glorified, already seated in heavenly places. I know those are hard concepts to get a hold of. But it is the word of God. And just because it's difficult for us fleshly people to conceive of doesn't mean it's not true. Anybody here ready to explain the Trinity for me? No, that's a hard one, but the Bible says it. And we accept it on faith. And we understand it as best we can. And we accept that Father, Son, and Spirit, the three are one. We accept that that's the way it is. We accept the fact that we are finished, complete, in Christ and in Christ alone. And we are seated in heavenly places. And we are utterly forgiven and spotless and unblemished and unblameable in the sight of God because of the finished work of Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to our account. We understand that that's what the Bible says. It's hard, but I say, take sides with God against yourself Accept what the word of God says. Recognize that that is what reality is. We're walking through this dark veil of tears down here. We have no idea what reality is. We have no idea what heaven really looks like. We have no idea the splendor that awaits us. We have no idea what the glory of God looks like. But that's reality. And we're down here walking through this darkness, through this sin-soaked world, thinking that our little measly pea brains have some concept of what reality actually is. You don't have the ability to grasp reality yet, but he's going to give you that ability. While we're down here, we just have to walk by faith, walk by his word, walk according to his standards, looking forward, hoping expectantly that one day he's going to wake us up completely to what genuine, eternal Righteous reality, splendor, glory actually looks like. And then we get to be part of it. Wow, how great will that be? And none of us are going to go in there singing, 
I'm so great. I did a good job. I stood before the law, watch me go. Nobody's going to be singing that. Instead, we're going to be saying, all glory to God. All glory to the Son of God because of everything he has accomplished. And we're never going to get sick of that song. We're never going to get tired of singing the glory and the praise and the worship. Won't it be nice to worship in spirit and truth? Because I know this, I know that every time I have ever thought that I was doing pretty well and started praying to God, some measly little awful little stupid little thought will creep into my head and I can't wait to praise God without my chemical brain pulling me off to all these other stupid things. Oh good, I'm glad for the amens, that means I'm not the only one. He and he alone accomplished all that for us. And he took the law out of the way. So then Paul brings it to a practical level and says, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a feast, a festival, or to a new moon or to a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come because the substance belongs to Christ. That's where we'll pick up next week. Notice that Paul says, now that you know all of this great theology, walk like it. Walk it out in your life and no longer be subject to the rudiments of this world. No longer let the philosophy or the religion or the theology that was created by men, no longer let it keep you in bondage. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And if you belong to Christ, don't let any other person, any other group, don't let any other affiliation confuse you, confound you, and bind you up into obedience to fleshly behavior as if that's going to do something good for you eternally. It's your flesh that was the problem to begin with. Your flesh cannot be the solution. Got it? Got it. Yeah. I think we should sing. If God leads us along,
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.